Well, it's very good to see you guys. Um, thanks for being here. My name is Kyle. If you're visiting with us, just want to extend a special thank you and welcome to you on behalf of this church. Uh, we know we're not the only church in town, so we're grateful that you chose to worship with us today. Uh, if you are visiting, all we really ask of you is that you fill out a Connect card, and you can find that in the seat in front of you. Uh, on there, we just want to get some information and uh, thank you again for being here. But you can take that after service and turn it into Miss Kay. Miss Kay Royals is the one that passed you your worship guide as you came in, and she'll have a gift for you uh, immediately following service. Just as a again, a thank you for being here. Y'all got big plans for Thanksgiving? Yeah? Anybody traveling? Raise your hand. You're traveling. Yeah, I got a few traveling. Anybody got family coming in? Yeah, some of you got family coming in. Good. Good. Well, that's exciting. That's one of the best parts about Thanksgiving is being able to spend time with folks, right? Uh, good. <laughs> well, I hope you're more excited than you sound. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> some of you are like, uh, in-laws, I don't think so. So uh, anyway, well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Today we are going to wrap up chapter 5. Uh, and with wrapping up chapter 5, we're going to wrap up this semester in John. Uh, what I mean by that is we're going to put John away for a couple of months, and then we're going to come back to John uh, in February. So December will be marked, as it always is, by our Advent season. Uh, these will be messages and themes surrounding the coming, the first coming of Christ, the first advent of Christ as a child uh, in in uh, flesh. Amen. The Word, as John 1 says, the Word becoming flesh. We're going to celebrate that together, and so we'll be in a sermon series on that. It's one of my favorite ones every year uh, because it's just neat to go back and see from the beginning of time how Christ was always promised. If you've heard me preach at all, you know that that's one of my favorite things about Christ, and it's going to show up again today. Amen. Is that He is the promised Messiah. He is the promised Savior. He did come. He did live. He did die for us. And because of that, we can find life in His name. Amen? Amen. Oh, gosh, you got to be way more excited than that. But we got work to do, all right? We got some work to do this morning. So, uh, And then in January, what we'll do is we'll be uh, certainly talking about prayer. We like to start the season or start the year with prayer, specifically 21 days of prayer and fasting. And so we'll have that time. We'll preach uh, on prayer. Um, and I'm praying through right now. Y'all be praying for me, but I'm praying through now uh, doing something a little bit different with that series than what we've been doing. So uh, just pray that the Lord would guide us in that. Amen. So, John. John's been good, right? John in chapter 20 says that the reason he writes this, the reason he tells these stories of Christ, is so that we can see Jesus. <laughs> and that in seeing Jesus, we'll see the Messiah, the very Son of God. And in having seen Him, John's hope is, what John knows about Christ is that you, you can't encounter Jesus and not find life in His name. So he's like, here, let me, let me show you Christ. And so he does this beautifully throughout his gospel. And, uh, and so we're going to read something here in a moment from John 5, but I just want to kind of remind you where we left off last week. Maybe you're just joining us this week. Maybe you've slept uh, a few times since last week. And so last week what happened was is Jesus enters Jerusalem and he sees this pool, uh, and around this pool are a bunch of people, invalids, lame, sick, blind, uh, people paralyzed, people who can't move. And, and so Jesus locks his vision on this one man who'd been an invalid uh, for 30 plus years. And he, he comes to him and he says, do you want to be healed? And the man says, well, I've got nobody to put me into the pool. See, tradition had it, and, and probably rightfully so, that an angel would come and he would stir the water and you could get into the pool and you would be healed of whatever uh, your sickness was. But this man couldn't get into the pool on his own. He needed someone to help him. What he needed was Jesus. And that's what we pointed out last week. That it wasn't really the pool he was looking for. He was looking for the miracle of God. And he didn't know it yet. But the greatest miracle that we can all experience is that God heals all of us of spiritual invalidness. Amen? That we're all paralyzed and in need of spiritual healing. And so Jesus does this. But he, 
He makes a mistake as far as the Jews around this place are concerned. He heals a man on the Sabbath. How dare we help somebody on the Sabbath? How dare we break a law that God had put into place and that man had elevated above even the very nature of God, which is to come and help those who are sick? Amen. And so Jesus does this. Thankfully, he does this. And he comes to the man and he tells the man um, that he needs to, to go and sin no more so that nothing worse may come upon him. He's warning him of eternal judgment. Spending eternity after this life under the judgment of God, otherwise known as hell, right? And he's saying that nothing worse, go and send them, or that nothing worse come upon you. And then the man reports these things to the Jews who are around him, and they begin to question Jesus. Why in the world would you heal somebody on the Sabbath? They begin to get angry because Jesus' response is, Well, you see, until now my father has been working, but now I am. Amen? Jesus says, but now I am working. And so in doing so, he not only calls God his Father, which would have been blasphemous, but he elevates himself to the level of God by saying, but now I too am working. And so now we've got a mess of Jews who were angry at Jesus, so much so that it says they wanted to, all, all the more they wanted to kill him. And so he's under this prosecution from the Jews, and Jesus defends himself. He defends not only himself, but his mission. And in defending his mission, he reveals to the Jews and to everyone and to us today as we read it, why he came. He reveals these things to us. And so I'm excited to get into this today. So with those things in mind, let's just read what it is that's taking place. It's, it's a little lengthy, I admit, uh, but bear with me. Starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has, himself, has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, talking about John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, talking about John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I give is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Amen. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take this very lengthy text and put it in our hearts today. Father, we come before you um, unable in our own right, under our own natural mind, to, to, to be able to understand your word. And so, Father, we ask for a spirit-infused word from you today. And God, we ask that you would uh, give us the ability in our hearts and our minds to comprehend your word, and when we say comprehend, Father, we're asking that you not only help us hear it and to understand it, but to apply it to our lives. God, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the blessing of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see him and find life in his name today. Amen. Amen. So, I've always liked crime-solving shows. Anybody with me on this? You like to watch a good crime-solving show? A few of you. Okay, cool. So as a kid, there was a show uh, called Matlock. Anybody ever seen Matlock? Yeah, all right. More hands now. So uh, I was in awe of Matlock's brilliance, and the swaggy gray suits, you know, were pretty cool too. He always wore this gray suit with a dark tie, and I just thought it was awesome. So anyway, but in every episode of Matlock, because it's TV and you need drama, it would seem like until almost to the very end that, the, that Matlock was not going to be able to solve the case in any way, that he was going to uh, be stumped by this one or baffled by this one. And then just a lot of times out of nowhere, they would receive a tip or some information or some new evidence that would completely change the case. And so Matlock, in like the, the final hour leading up to uh, needing to present his case to the court, would be reworking his case, reorchestrating things so that he could bring it before the judge and the jury and prove what he had been trying to prove all along. He was just a genius about this. And so he would come into the courtroom, he would get the person that he wanted on the stand, and he would begin to present his case. The witness would try uh, then to wiggle out of it inevitably. And, and then with all the suspense building, all of it kind of riding on this, and you know he's holding this final piece of evidence in his back pocket, he would just lay it out like boom. <laughs> and, and in that moment, the witness would break, the case would fall in his favor, and I would walk away thinking, man, Matlock is as cool as the other side of the pillow, right? I mean, he was just, he was awesome. And, and so in my eyes, he had it going on. And I think that the reason for bringing this up is this. I think that Christ is doing something, obviously, far more significant here, but he's doing the same thing. There, there are these evidences being brought against Christ by these Jewish prosecutors uh, that he is not the Son of God, that he is disobeying the law by doing a work on the Sabbath, <laughs> which baffles me because he just healed a man that had been an invalid for 38 years, and, and somehow it's more important that he broke the law than it was that he healed someone. Anyway, we're probably guilty of that as well at times. Uh, but so Christ is standing here before these Jewish prosecutors, and he begins to present his case almost in sermon form. Like when I preach a sermon, this is really what I'm trying to do. I want to lay the facts out before you. Like here are these things. Here's what we're saying. And then I want to lay the proof on top of those things. Here is Christ. Here is how this points to Christ. Here is what this means for our life. All of those types of things. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He makes a case for his mission. He wants to reveal his mission. And what he does in revealing his mission is he reveals his purpose. And his purpose is that he would be a mediator between us and God, between mankind and and a perfect and holy God, I should say sinful mankind, and a perfect and holy God, that Christ would be their Savior. And this is what he lays before them. He's got everyone gathered around him. He just begins to present his 
message. And our text today could really be considered a two-part sermon, so that's just how I've laid it out for you today. Uh, But here's what I think. I think that Jesus is revealing himself as mediator by first explaining his role. First, he wants you to, to gather the information. He wants to explain the information of what's taking place. So if you have your worship guide, you can write that down, explaining his role. Jesus starts this, he starts down this road by saying that he is one with the Father, and all that he does is as mediator. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, and what he means by that is he wants his audience and his reader to pay very careful attention. And when I say pay very careful attention, the reason is because Jesus is about to say something about himself, about God, that you and I would never know unless he had said it. These are things that cannot be discerned by spiritual mind. These are things that Jesus is revealing about himself. Uh, He goes on to explain that everything he does is from the Father. He uses these words. He says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. What this means for us is that Jesus was so devoted to his Father, uh, to his Father's will, that it was impossible for him to act separately. Jesus is saying, my role then is to do exactly what I see my father doing. He knew the father's purposes so intimately that they were always before him. They were always in his eye. They were always in his view. And everything that Christ does in his ministry on earth first came from the father. Everything about what he does the healing of the invalid, the the message he's preaching now to these Jewish prosecutors, everything about Christ's life was meticulously calculated before the beginning of time. But before God speaks all things into existence, this moment was calculated. This moment right now that we're in was calculated. This is how big God is. There's nothing that Christ does apart from what he sees his father doing. He would do them in the he would do the same things with the same manner, the same authority, the same energy, and the same effectiveness of God. Jesus, as the Son of God, is God in the flesh. He is revealing to us. If you remember back to John chapter one, I don't expect you to, but if you will, uh, you'll know that what we said was the word became flesh, and the word was God. He was God in the flesh. Jesus is God revealed for all of humanity. And so everything he does is perfectly calculated. Everything he does is a result of him seeing the Father in a way that you and I will never see the Father. And he's living those things out before us. And so as a result, Jesus says, the Father loves the Son. And he shows him all that he is doing In greater works than healing this invalid will the Father do through the Son so that everyone may marvel. There there will be greater works because Christ is going to raise the dead, physically speaking, not only his own life, but he's going to raise uh, Lazarus towards the latter part of John. But he's also talking about a different resurrection. He's talking about how he will raise the dead in sin to spiritual life. And so he's saying that many will be in all of the works, but they will not believe, which would be of the most benefit for them, even so more than that work. And so Jesus reveals these two resurrections. He lays these things out. And in revealing two resurrections, Jesus is further explaining his role as mediator. He's revealing his Uh, his power as one who is equal to God. So he's not backing down from the accusations that these Jews are making. He's actually amping them up. He's saying, you don't even know what you accuse me of. Here's here's who I really am. (laughs) And he begins to explain his role. And so it leads him to talk about these two resurrections, which are quite significant because they're only things that God could accomplish. The first is a present resurrection. You can write that in the margin of your notes if you want, but he's, he's talking about a present resurrection, a resurrection from the death of sin, that you are dead in your trespasses, as Ephesians 2 points out, to being raised to 
life, a life of righteousness, which means you are made alive in Christ. Also like we see in Ephesians 2, but also like we see throughout John so far. The hour was coming, Jesus says, and is now here where dead souls will be made alive by the preaching of the gospel, by the mentioning of the name of Jesus, by talking about this message, the conversion of a soul is the moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's by the voice of the Son of God that souls are raised to spiritual life. So it's, it's by hearing the Word of Christ that we're raised. This is why it's so important for us to hear the gospel preached, but it's also why it's important for us to speak the gospel to others. It's not in my opinion. It's not in what I know that will raise a life a spiritually dead person to spiritual life, it's in proclaiming the very words of Christ that will raise someone. It's in showing them the very words of God that will raise someone. And so we want to always be keeping the gospel before ourselves and before others because the voice of Christ must be heard by all so that they may live by it. The second is a future resurrection. He says a time is coming where all who are dead will hear his voice and rise. Those who have done good, meaning they've placed their faith in Jesus, they've lived for him, will rise to eternal life. And those who have done bad, meaning that they ignored Jesus and placed their faith elsewhere, namely in and of themselves, will rise to eternal judgment. And it is Jesus as mediator whom the Father has entrusted with the authority to execute that judgment. Jesus says this much. He says the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So the one who executes the judgment is also the one who can save us. I love that. <laughs> all of this leads to the honor of Christ and to the comfort of all believers because if you're placing your faith in Christ, you can do it with great assurance that you can depend on Him for absolutely everything you need, namely spiritual life, namely eternal life. But also, if you're placing your faith in Him, you can depend on everything you need in this life. Need, not want. It's a difference. We'll get to that in a little bit. And this is the great purpose of God in giving the Son judgment, so that, as Christ says, so that all may honor the Son. It's the whole purpose of it all, so that all may honor the Son. The honoring of Jesus is the great purpose of God and is the great responsibility given to us. We must honor the Son. We must confess that He is Lord and worship Him. You'll either do it now or you'll do it in the life to come because it says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God. So you'll either be made to do it when it's too late, as a result of realizing who Christ was. Or you can do it now while there's still time, while there's still breath. This is the weight of what Christ is presenting to us today, that there is death, but there's also life. Life that He's offering freely to all of mankind, to anyone who would come. This is why Jesus says that anyone who will not honor the Son does not honor the Father either because this is God's purpose in sending His Son for us. Now, what Jesus is laying out to me is quite incredible for this purpose. Jesus is not just a prophet, as some teach. He, he's not just the figurehead of another religion, as some proclaim. He is not a way that some can find peace and get to heaven while others can find God elsewhere. Jesus is explaining right here to his audience and to us that he is the very Son of God, that he is the way to God, that you find life in him, that any other option is death. He is the one who raises dead souls to life. He's saying, watch me as I do these things and reveal God the Father to you. Believe in my name as Lord and you will receive spiritual life both now and forever. 
Amen? Brothers and sisters, we must hear him and obey him today. We must. When, when you do, and if you will, you must know that you will receive full pardon from sin and death because of Christ's blood which was shed for you on a cross at Calvary. You will also receive the benefits of being His. The benefits of being His. Namely, that you may rest your souls on Him as you believe in Him and live for Him. That He holds you. And if He holds you, nothing can tear you apart. What Jesus does here as mediator was totally orchestrated by the Father. We've already established this. Do you want to know what you can depend on in your relationship with God? Are you curious to know, like, what what can I depend on in this relationship with God? What can I know about God? What can I depend on in Him? Do you want to know those things? Of course we do. Then you hear the word of Jesus. And when Jesus, what Jesus says and does is an exact replica of who the Father is doing nothing of his own accord, totally revealing the Father to us. This is the purpose of Christ, to become a mediator, to reveal God to us, but to also bridge a gap, to make a way where there is no way. Amen? And so these are massive claims that Jesus lays out here in the first part of what he is saying. And he knows that his listeners will struggle to believe these things. And so he provides proof. He begins to prove his role. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Jesus moves from his claim to be the Son of God to his proof that he is the Son of God. He moves from his claim to be the Son of God to his proof that he is the Son of God. And you know what I love about Jesus? It really does set him apart from other religions, other gods, other figureheads of these religions. He doesn't prop himself up, not in the way that you would expect someone who is Lord in the only way to prop themselves up. He doesn't do that. It's not first and foremost about him. What we see here is humility on display, the very humility of Christ on display. In fact, what he says is, is if I alone bear witness about myself, then you're not going to believe me. He says, my testimony is not true. He means that, though it is true, that these things are fact, you will not believe it because I would just simply be, in your eyes, propping myself up. So, to me, this is a warning for all humanity to never trust anyone or anything as Lord who cannot point to many witnesses. Here's what I mean by many witnesses, namely thousands of years of prophecy about (laughs) themselves. Scripture that was thousands of years old written about him. Jesus says, here, let let me show you by these many witnesses that I am the Messiah, the mediator who you've been waiting for. First, he points to the Father. He says, the Father bears witness about me. He says, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the witness he bears is true. You know what I love about this is that Jesus, in a moment where he is under great duress, where he is under fire from Jewish prosecutors, probably feeling lots of hatred, he says that there is one who bears witness about me, and I know that his witness is true. That the Father loves the Son. In that moment, he's reminding himself, God is for me. God is for me. God is with me. I am his son. He's not only telling that to others, but he's, he's almost preaching the gospel of that to himself. Jesus is talking, of course, about God the Father when he says there's another one who bears witness about me. The Father bore witness vocally for thousands of years leading up to this point through the Scriptures, but even more recently at Jesus' baptism, which you can read about in Matthew. After Jesus comes up out of the water, this voice sounds. And it's God the Father, and He says, This 
is my beloved son. This is him. So the father has also bore witness then through the power that he had given Jesus to do these miraculous signs. This is what we've been pointing out as we've been walking through these signs. That these signs aren't just about signs. First and foremost, they're to show that Jesus is from God, that he has come as an ambassador for God, as the very son of God, and he has power that no one else has. I mean, healing a man's son from miles away is something that none of us are going to accomplish just simply by our voice. Amen? Turning water into wine, gallons and gallons and gallons of water into wine, is something that none of us are ever going to accomplish. Walking up to an invalid and saying, get up, man. (laughs) Take up your mat and walk is something that most likely none of us are going to be able to do. Certainly without, not without power from on high. So, he uses these signs to prove, first and foremost, who he is. But rest assured, Jesus says, I'm not doing these things for my own sake. I'm not giving you these witnesses for my own sake. I'm giving them to you so that you believe, so that you may be saved, is what he says. He tells them about John the Baptist then whom they had great respect for. If you remember, they send people out to ask John the Baptist, are you, are, are you the Messiah? He's like, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not him, but he's coming. Amen? He points people to Christ. And then when Christ came, he even tells his own disciples, that's him. That's the one I've been telling you guys about. And they just immediately leave him and begin to follow Jesus. John spent his whole life telling others about Christ to come. This is what God ordained for him. And so he tells people. But what Jesus says here about John is that he was a burning and shining lamp, that John was a light to reflect the light source, but he was not the light source, that Jesus is the light source. But the people rejoiced in John's light, though they never walked in it. Matthew Henry points this out in his commentary. He says, Jesus mentions their respect for John to condemn them for their present opposition to himself. If they had continued their respect for John, they would have accepted Jesus. And as as what we know now is that was the whole point of John's ministry, is that he would point people to Jesus. Men that they would, when they saw Jesus, they would know that's him. That's the one John was telling us about. He was just a light, uh, a, a light to reflect the light source. He wasn't our source, that's our source. And this is what Jesus is trying to bring up. But then Jesus moves from John and he begins to walk through further proof. I want to lay these proofs out for us so they'll rest on a heart like they were resting on the heart of those in attendance in our text. He goes on to say, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus was referring not only to the works that they had seen already, but he's referring to the work of raising the spiritually dead. He's referring to his whole body of work, of which they don't even know yet, but of which Christ speaks when he says on the cross, the end of John, it is finished. Christ is referring to his whole body of work, namely the dying for sinners, the shed, shedding of his blood so that people could be washed and made whole by, and then find righteousness in him by faith in him. And so Jesus says, the Father himself has borne witness of me. His voice you have heard, his, his voice you have not, and you've never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Ignorance of God is the true reason why people reject the record that he has given of his son. Many have the word of God coming to them, making impressions on them for a season, but not abiding in them, not living in them, not them indwelling them, not those truths indwelling them. The indwelling of the life-giving spirit of God is tested by its effects on you. This is what Peter's talking about when he talks about the trials and the tribulations, the things you go through will refine you like silver. 
They'll purify you. They'll bring out the things that are true in you. This is what happens if the life-giving Spirit of God really lives in you. What I mean by this is, maybe this question helps clarify, what have you done with Christ? You've encountered Christ, most certainly. Even today, if this is your first time hearing the Lord, hearing about the Lord and what He's done, what are you going to do with Jesus? This is the answer that matters, or that answer matters for all of eternity. What have you done with Christ? Your answer will either show you are spiritually dead in yourself or alive in Christ Jesus. Then Jesus continues to move forward as if these things are not enough. And he begins to appeal to the Scriptures for defense of himself. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. All of the Old Testament, which would have been the first five books at this point of him saying this, bear witness about Christ. They bear witness about him. The Jews knew the Scriptures better than anyone, yet they couldn't see Jesus in them. They didn't see how these things meant the Messiah is coming, though it's in there. But, but they were so hung up on every dot and tittle of the law that they couldn't see how those things were always pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus tells them that Moses' writings were about him. They were about me, he says. He writes about me. The law of Moses that they seek to follow so diligently was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Although they trusted in Moses, they didn't receive his message and in its true, in its true sense and meaning in the same way that they trusted John, but they didn't receive his message in its true sense and meaning. In the same way that they would see Christ perform a miracle and they would trust in His name just simply because He could do a miracle, but they didn't believe in Him in the true sense of His meaning. Namely, that He would be the mediator, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so Jesus condemns, condemns them. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for He wrote about me. But if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe my words. How are you going to believe what I'm saying? Do you know that it is possible for people to diligently search the Scriptures and still be strangers to its true meaning? Truly we know that, right? What I mean by that is that all of your Bible, in any text that you would open up, we can get to Jesus from there. I can point to you, in any text that we would open up, how that points us to Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the Bible, is that this is one long story about Christ coming to save the world. If we're not getting to Christ when we're reading our Bibles or when we're preaching, then we're missing the whole meaning of it. We're no better than these Jews that we're reading about right now. We must get to Christ. Why? Because the law kills, but Christ gives life. The law proves that we're dead in our trespasses, but Christ saves us from being dead in our trespasses. The law shows us our need for Christ, but Christ gives us life. It, it'll make you aware of your need for Him, but life is found by faith in Him, trust in Him, throwing yourself upon the Lord as the only one who can save your soul. So it's, it is our God-given way to know Jesus, the Bible is. And it is in knowing Jesus that we find eternal life in His name. The, the Scriptures are our greatest evidence of the person and the work of God. You see it throughout the Old Testament, and there's lots of questions, and then Jesus shows up and He answers these things. And the Holy Spirit comes and provides even further evidence of the nature and the character of God. And suddenly, all these things in the Old Testament that may or may not make sense begin to be illuminated by Christ and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And this is how these two testaments work together. So the Scriptures are our greatest evidence of the person and work of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
Matthew Henry says, where God demands belief, he will not fail to supply sufficient evidence. Praise God. He has given us all the evidence that we need to know Christ and find life in his names. Friend, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him? The truths you hear, the things you see, what are you going to do with Christ? Won't you come to him so that you can find life in his name? Won't you stop seeking a better way on your own and come and know the best way to live? After his explanation and his proof of his mission as mediator, Jesus rebukes the people in four ways. He rebukes their attitude, the way that they're acting, the things that they're doing. Real quickly, I want to run through those. Because I think these four things also reveal hindrances that you and I face today. When we encounter the message of Christ, we see the evidence of what he's done, I think these things are going to be the things that get in our way. So we must be aware of them. Number one, they refuse to come. Even after knowing him, even after seeing him, even after hearing the witnesses of Scripture and John the Baptist and Jesus himself performing miracles, they refuse to come. Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus offered life, but that offer wasn't accepted. And so here's what I don't want you to miss. There is life to be gained with Jesus for poor souls of which we are. There is life to be gained in Christ. By life, Jesus means the perfection of your very being. Everything that you are being perfected. Over time, now, in part now, but once and for all in eternity. Christ, day by day, will make you more like himself through the power of the Spirit of God which he puts in you. That that well of living water becomes a source of life for you. He also means that there's perfect joy found in him. That no matter what life throws your way, you can be perfectly joyous in Christ. Jesus is life. Let us make no mistake about that. Christ is life. The very definition of it. And if you want true life, you must come to Jesus. And if you come, you will receive true life. This we know from Scripture. The second reason, the second hindrance, I would say, is that they don't love God. I know, Jesus says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You see, these Jews were guilty of loving God's stuff, loving God's commands, loving the idea of God without loving God himself. The reason people treat Jesus with disrespect today is that they don't love God. They don't care to love God. People do not love God because they don't want to know God. They may like the idea, they may like the stories, but they don't want Christ. They don't want God himself. I think we do this in the way that we attend church. I think we do this in the way that we practice the means of grace or the spiritual disciplines. I think we do this in the way that we live quite often. I am guilty of this at times of playing a game, pretending to love God, doing what I can to look good for others. And you may think that you have everyone fooled, but please know, Jesus says, I know you, and you don't have the love of God in you. He sees through your disguises. He knows you better than you know yourself. You will, as Jeremiah 17 points out so clearly, you will deceive yourself because your heart is deceitful. But you will not ever deceive Jesus. Not in this life, certainly not in the life to come. 
And even though he knows you to be a great sinner, wretched in all your ways, deserving of eternal damnation, he comes and he dies for you. He comes and he offers himself wholly for you. And then he offers this gift of come. Come to me. Find rest for your souls forever. Lay the weight of your life on me. I can bear it. I can do it. Amen? He's offering you eternal life. Here's the problem. Number three, we prefer idols. <laughs> because of our wretched nature, Christ has to utter these words. He says, I, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What's up with that? Are we not guilty of doing this all the time with idols? Placing things before Christ all the time? Jobs, marriages, parenting, our roles in whatever in life, seeking things that we think will make us eternally happy when it's Christ who makes us eternally happy, being married to stuff and things more so than we want to be married to Christ? Gosh, we do this all the time. Romans 1 says this of humanity. It says they exchanged truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Ouch. Friends, I think we must be, I don't think, I know, we must be aware of the idols of our hearts, the things that our hearts are longing for, the desires that our hearts have, the things we're pursuing. Are they going to glorify God? Are we pursuing them so that His name could be made great? Because if we're not, it's an idol. Plain and simple. We are pursuing it so that we can make our own name great. This is not where we find life. This is where we find death. This is where we have things ripped away from us. Stripped by God and His loving discipline of us so that we would pursue what is really true. So that we would pursue Christ. Matthew Henry points this out. So those who shut their eyes to the true light are given up to wonder endlessly after false lights. Romans 1 would agree when it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Friends, please heed the warning of Scripture, heed the warning of Christ today, and let us do that which is good for us, that which is good for humanity, that which is good for our souls, that we not wander around with a debased mind. I think the indictment goes further still. Jesus points out our pride. He says, you don't come to me because of your pride. How can you believe, he says, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only one of God? I was brought to my knees when I read Mar uh, Matthew Henry's statement on Jesus' statement. Matthew Henry says, They insulted and undervalued Christ because they admired and overvalued themselves. I have been guilty of this so often. And I don't have to know you to know that you're guilty of this too. This is the nature of our being. That we would overvalue and admire ourselves. God forgive us. Worldly honor is fleeting and unfulfilling. The spiritual honor comes from God to all who believe in Jesus, and it lasts forever. Now, which is better? Worldly honor in this meaningless, 
small existence that I have now or spiritual honor from God on high through Christ that would last for eternity? I think we know the obvious answer, but what do our lives say that we're pursuing? What are we doing with Jesus? The desire and the striving for worldly honor, which is this idea of making your name great on earth, is a great hindrance to faith in Jesus. There is not room for your glory and His glory in your life. But rest assured, He will get the glory from your life one way or the other. But now you will either serve one and hate the other. I think that this vapor of a life, as James calls it, a mist, here today and gone the next. I think that it is not worth seeking my own glory. But this life is worth seeking the glory of the one who has reigned from before the beginning of time or light or water or trees or birds or animals or beasts or you and me. He's reigned from then. He is reigning now and he will reign as Lord forever. I think life is totally worth seeking his glory seeking to make his name great. Now, how can you believe in Jesus when the point of your existence is simply to make a good impression on others? It's simply to prop yourself up. How can you believe in Jesus when the point of your existence is to make a good impression on others? Life is too short to live for ourselves there are many, many who have gone before us and who are still to come that have done and will do some amazing things. You learned about a lot of them in school, and yet we don't know their names or their accomplishments. Think about it. Across the span of history, so many have gone before us who have done some amazing things yet we don't know their names or accomplishments. I think the most fulfilling life is to live by faith in Jesus all of your days. I say this with the weight of Scripture in my favor. I think the most fulfilling life is to live, place my faith in Christ for all of my days, trust Him every day, and then to die and be forgotten. I think that's a great life. I think that's a meaningful life. I think it relieves me of so much pressure too. It pulls this weight off my shoulders that I have to be something that God may or may not have created me to be. I can just simply trust Him and know that if I'll trust Him, I may not matter much in this life, but I will matter for eternity. The truth is, we're all going to die and be forgotten. The question is, what will you do with Jesus while you're still here? Because that makes all the difference. So I ask again, won't you lay your idols and your pride down? Come to Jesus to find the very love of God and true life in His name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning?